All right, let's open up our Bibles once again to the book of Matthew. As we make our way verse by verse through the New Testament, we arrive here at chapter 16 for the very first time. Now, in these opening verses, Jesus is going to be dealing with the subject of a blindness. Now, as Americans, we got a, a real phobia about going blind. The New York Times reports that John Hopkins School of Medicine found that most Americans regard the loss of eyesight as the worst ailment that could happen to them. More than a loss of a limb, memory, hearing, or speech, or even having AIDS. Now, the American Foundation for the Blind, they kind of found the same thing. They report that Americans fear vision loss more than they fear cancer, AIDS, stroke, heart disease, diabetes, according to the National Opinion Poll released by the American Foundation uh, for, for the Blind. Now, the eyeball. I mean, the eyeball is just an incredible mechanism. I mean, the whole process of you and I being able to see, it is just a marvel to behold with the optic nerve and how the brain interprets these light waves and how it is that you and I see different color. It's just absolutely amazing. In fact, Answers in Genesis tells us that it would take a minimum of 100 years for a crazy supercomputer to simulate what takes place in your eye many times every single second. Now, it is such a complicated mechanism that this was the one issue that gave Charles Darwin pause as to whether or not evolution was possible. In fact, he writes in Origin of the Species, he says, to suppose that the eye, with all of its inimmutable contrivances for adjusting the focus to different distances, for admitting different amounts of light, and for the correction of spherical and chromatic uh, aberration could have been formed by natural selection seems, I freely confess, absurd in the highest degree. Yeah, I mean, just that this eyeball just kind of popped into existence, it does seem like a, a big pill to swallow, uh, doesn't it? Now, as I say, he wrote this in his book, Origin of the Species. Now, this is what's interesting about that book is that wasn't the full title of the book. The full title, Origin of the Species by Means of Natural Selection or the, get a load of this, Preservation of the Favored Races and the Struggle for Life. What in the world is that about? This guy was as big a racist as you're ever gonna find. He believed that the darker your skin, the lower you were on the evolutionary scale. The whiter your skin, the more advanced you were. Now ask yourself, isn't it interesting? We're living in an age where we're tearing down statues of racists left and right. How is it that this guy's statues remain unmolested? Why is that? Well, when you figure that out, you realize that there are some racists that are more important than others. Now, he does not turn away from the theory of evolution because he writes a number of years later, he says, the eye to this day gives me a cold shudder. But when I think of the fine known gradations, my reason tells me I ought to conquer uh, that cold shudder. Uh, you know, the eye bugs me, the, comp the complexity of the eye, it really bothers me. But, you know, just, just given a few more billion years and a few more chance mutations, I think we might be on to something. Now, Jesus is not dealing with 
physical blindness. Now, certainly one of the signs of the Messiah is that he's going to come and he's going to heal physical blindness. But what we see on display in these opening verses of chapter 16 is spiritual blindness. Now, he is dealing with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he said to them earlier, back in chapter 13, he said, they have closed their eyes. Uh, they have closed their eyes so that their eyes cannot see. Their ears cannot hear. Their hearts cannot understand. And they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. There is what is known as spiritual blindness. Every single one of us here, we were born spiritually blind. And it took a miracle of God's grace so that we could understand the Lord. I, one of the things that amazed me, I was raised in a non-Christian environment. We, we were not a church-going family. I didn't know anything about the Bible. And one of the things that amazed me was the moment that I bent my knee to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. What amazed me was how I began to understand how was it that just 24 hours before, I didn't know God, I didn't want to know God, get that Bible away from me, I don't care about any of this garbage at all. And then all of a sudden, something happened to me, and I could perceive spiritual truth. Arthur Pink, he said it this way, he said, there is in the unregenerate mind an incompetence an incapacity, an inability to understand the things of the Spirit. And Christ's repeated miracle in restoring sight to the naturally blind was designed to teach us our imperative need for the same divine power, recovering spiritual vision to our souls. That as we see Christ over and over again, dealing with, spiritual, with physical blindness, it helps us to understand that he has also come and has sent his spirit that we might receive spiritual insight and spiritual sight. For those loved ones and those family members, because sometimes those two are not the same, uh, you know, and you're, you're concerned about them and you want them to come to Christ, the greatest prayer that you can pray, Lord, open their eyes, open their eyes. Look, how how else do you explain the rejection of the gospel? Think about the gospel. The gospel is, I trust in Christ. That's, that's, that's what he's asking me to do. He's not asking me to amputate my right arm. He's not asking me to give him, you know, all, all of my wealth. He's not, he's not asking anything from me. He says, you believe in your heart, that Jesus Christ is, you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. You believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You shall be saved. What a deal. I receive Christ. All of my sin and all of my iniquity is forgiven. And I have eternal life. And it's all based on his work, not mine. And so what, what would cause me to reject that? What causes me to reject that is spiritual blindness. But I believe that every heart that wants to know God I believe every hungry heart finds God. You want to know why you're here? You want to know what the purpose of your life is? You want to know who God really is? I believe that if you come with those sincere questions, I believe that God in his grace and his mercy, he will meet you and you will find uh, the Lord. But now Jesus is dealing with guys that are just hardened. They've hardened themselves against anything that he's got going on.
And so we're introduced to these boys now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 16, where we read this. Then the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they came testing him, asking that he would show them a sign from heaven. Now, again, get the flow of what's happened. The last time we were together, he was in non-Jewish lands. And there in the area of Decapolis, he was welcomed and people loved him and people were just, you know, standing in long lines for three days to get to, to speak with him. So he got in the boat, he goes across the Sea of Galilee, he goes to Magdala, and as soon as his feet hit Jewish soil, there is immediate resistance, immediate pushback. They do not want this kind of Messiah that God has sent to them. And so these guys, and notice they're, they're on the same team. They have joined forces. Notice that it doesn't say, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. But notice that it says the Greek, the Greek cons, uh, construction there is that it is the Pharisees and Sadducees. They, they are together. The coming is one. Now, these guys are natural enemies. They hate each other. They don't have anything in common what, whatsoever. In fact, William Barclay, he tells us, it would have been well-nigh impossible to find two more different sects and parties, and yet they came together in their desire to eliminate Jesus, and they, they became united in their hostility. So in some back room, smoke-filled room, the Pharisees and the Sadducees got together and said, look, we gotta get rid of this guy. Two groups that naturally despised each other, kind of like Republicans and Democrats getting together to fight term limits, right? That the Republican sees term limits as a greater threat than the Democrat, and the Democrat sees term limits as a greater threat than the Republican. So these guys have decided they're gonna lay aside their differences in order that they might destroy this guy because this guy is threatening the entire power base. And so they come to Jesus and they say, you know, we are really close. I mean, we are so close to buying what it is that you're selling. And we're just, I mean, we're about ready to take that, that final step. But the problem is, you just haven't quite pulled a large enough rabbit out of your turban. And so if you could see clear to do some great miracle here, and you really wonder, what, what were they looking for? He's already healed the blind. He's already healed the deaf. He's all, the lame are walking. He's healed, of course, those that have leprosy. He's raised people from the dead. And you're really wondering, what in the world are these people looking for? Well, they're, they're, they tell us. They tell us, don't they? They're in verse 1. Show us a sign from heaven. What we want is an atmospheric miracle. We want to see a miracle that takes place in the atmosphere of planet Earth. Now, why are they asking for this? Now, they already have gone on record to state clearly that Jesus was not a magician. This was not sleight of hand. What he was doing was a demonstration of spiritual power. This is supernatural, what is going on in this man's life. But the supernatural is finding its root in the power of darkness. He is doing this because he has the power of the demonic world behind him. He's using Satan to cast out Satan. So if you want us to believe 
that you're doing this because of the power of God is what is behind you. Now, the reason why they believe this, Henry Alford, he tells us, the Jews believed that demons could do no signs on earth, but only God could produce a sign out of heaven. So they're looking for something atmospheric. They're looking for uh, Moses and the pillar of cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night, probably looking for maybe the long day of Joshua. Show us something in the atmosphere that will alleviate our concerns uh, that you are not uh, operating under the power of the prince of, uh, of darkness here. Now, what is interesting here is that he was, Jesus was the the sign. They're asking for a sign from heaven. Christ was the sign from heaven. They were told over and over again, for example, in the book of Isaiah, look, when the Messiah comes, he's going he's to you know, heal the lame. He's going to heal the deaf. He's going to heal the blind. He's going to do all of this. If they looked around at what Jesus was doing, they would clearly recognize this is the Messiah. You remember when Mary and Joseph we're bringing the baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him. You remember there was that old dude, Simeon, that came up and just grabbed the child out of Mary's arms and started saying all kinds of weird things. And in Luke's gospel, chapter two, he said, he blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And then notice what? And for a sign which shall be spoken against. So these religious leaders are so blind, they are so lost in their own self-importance, they have no clue that this is the very sign from heaven that they are requesting. Now, notice Jesus's response. He says in verse two, he answered and he said unto them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red, and in the morning, it will be foul weather today, for the sky is red and threatening. Hypocrites, play actors is what he's calling them. You know how to discern the face of the sky, but you cannot discern the signs of the times. A wicked and an adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and no sign shall be given unto it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Now he'll enlarge upon that later, talking about Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. And so Christ, he's going to be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. So the sign of the prophet Jonah, and notice he left them and he uh, departed. Now these religious hypocrites, they understood weather patterns, right? Now Israel, like like where we're at here in North America, we're kind of at a mid-latitude spot. And when you're at a mid-latitude of, of the earth, weather patterns, they go west from the west to, to the east. And so you're in, you're in your ship out on the ocean there off of the coast of Israel. And uh, in the morning, there's a bright red sunrise. Well, that's letting you know there's a high pressure system over there, and that high pressure system is moving away from you. It's going to be moving further east, and what's going to come in behind it out of the west is going to be a low uh, pressure system. 
And so you're going you're gonna to end up with the saying, you know, uh, uh, red sky in the morning, sailor take warning, right? Because that high pressure system is moving away, low pressure is going to move in, and that's going to bring in the possibility of storms. In the evening, you look in the western sky, it's bright red. That means that the high pressure is to your west. So that high pressure is going to be moving over the top of you. It's going to be bringing you just a wonderful, sunshiny day. And uh, so here these guys are, they understand weather, and they understand the weather patterns, but they do not understand spiritual things. This is why spiritual insight is not based on intellect. Now, there are, there are atheists that will try and tell you the reason why you're a follower of Jesus, because you're a redneck hillbilly. And if you would just simply get a college education like they have, you wouldn't be so naive that you'd be buying in. Uh, to all of this garbage. I like Donald Hagner. He says this, it is surprising that in a wide variety of different fields of knowledge, human beings can be so knowledgeable and perceptive, yet in the realm of the knowledge of God exists in such darkness. The issue in the knowledge of God is not intellect, but it is receptivity. They just don't want God. And I don't know where you're at this morning, but if you're here and you don't want God, I got great news for you. You don't have to have God, right? The, the issue is, do I want to know God or not? Do I want to have a relationship with God or not? And they just refuse to believe because they've got this idea that Christ is going to begin to pinch my toes when it comes to my morality I want, to, I want to smoke what I want to smoke. I want to drink what I want to drink. I want to sleep with whoever I want to sleep with. I don't want that in my life. I don't want God cramping my lifestyle. It's like Voltaire. Voltaire said, even if a miracle should be wrought in an open marketplace before a thousand sober witnesses, I would rather mistrust my senses than to admit a miracle. I don't want to be bothered with a relationship with God. And how does Jesus respond? What are we told there in verse four? That he left them. Now that Greek word for left, it means to leave a person. It has the idea of forsake, ceasing to care for. It means to abandon. He abandoned them there on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And it's only reasonable. Is it not reasonable? You know what it's like to reach out. He's been reaching out to these people now uh, for three and a half years. And at every turn, there is rejection. You know, you know what it's like to try and give somebody an olive branch, to reach out to a person. I, I want a relationship with you. I, I want to I have a, a, a great, uh, solid uh, relationship. I, 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 want, I want to forgive you. I want you to forgive me. And we reach out, we reach out, and at every turn, it's no, 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 no. I mean, at some point, what are you going to do? Well, all right, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll move on. And that's what Christ does here. Now notice, we get back to the disciples in verse five. And we read this. Now when the disciples had come to the other side, so they've gotten in the boat and, and they're he heading across the Sea of Galilee. They're gonna go to the northeast corner of the Sea of Galilee. And so when his disciples had come to the other side, uh-oh, got a problem here. Uh, they had forgotten uh, to take bread. Somebody... We don't know who, so somebody had the responsibility, I'm sure. Somebody was supposed to bring lunch. And so they get, they get across to see Galilee, 
at all. We, we, we do not have lunch with us. This, this is a very serious problem. And then Jesus said to them, now take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they reason. Now you see these guys huddling up, these 12 massive brains of theirs, huddling up there in the front of the boat. Huddle up. Let's talk about this. And so uh, they got up in the front of the boat, and they are reasoning now among themselves, saying it is because, right, the reason why he just said what he said is because we have taken no bread. We, he said what he said because we have forgotten lunch, right? So their mind is on lunch. We've got this problem. Now, what, what is being described, so they've left Magdala, and they're heading to the northeast corner, because what's going to happen, and we'll pick this up next week, is that they're going to end up 25 miles to the north in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus is going to say some amazing things, and Caesarea Philippi is going to provide a strategic location. There's a reason. God does not do random. Jesus does not do random. There is always purpose and there is design behind everything that he does, everything that he says. There is purpose and design behind everything that he does in your life and in mine. And he takes them to Caesarea Philippi and he's going to say some mind-blowing things up to them, uh, to them up there. And so they get there and they say, all right, we don't have uh, any, any bread. Now, I like the paraphrase of J.B. Phillips in verse 7. J.B. Phillips paraphrases it this way. But they were arguing with each other, and they were saying that we forgot to bring bread. Right? So, you know, it's your responsibility. Why is it my responsibility? I thought it was your turn to bring us. And so they're kind of going at each other, and they believe the reason why Jesus brought up now the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the leaven is because their mind is stuck here uh, on, on lunch. Now, uh, Albert Edersheim, Alfred Edersheim, he says an interesting thing. He said, they thought the words of Christ implied that in his view, they had not forgotten to bring bread, but purposely omitted to do so in order, like the Pharisees and the Sadducees, to seek of him a sign of his divine Messiahship. He thinks we're just like them. He thinks that we have forgotten this uh, all on purpose. And so here's Christ. I'm not talking about lunch. I'm not talking about lunch. He, his mind is on the go-around that he just had with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And he recognizes that the flaws that had overtaken those religious men are a clear and present danger that could also overtake his own disciples. And he doesn't want his disciples, he didn't want them, and he does not want you and I to fall into the very same trap that these guys had fallen into. Notice in verse 8, Jesus' response. He said, being aware of it, he said unto them, Oh, you of little faith, why do you reason among yourselves because you have brought no bread? Do you not yet understand and remember the five loaves and the 5,000, how many baskets you took up, and the seven loaves and the 4,000, and how many large baskets you took up? How is it that you do not understand that I did not speak to you concerning bread? I'm not talking about lunch. I'm not talking about what we're going to eat, for heaven's sakes. But to beware 
of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now they are in the presence of God. Jesus is the master of every circumstance. There is no problem too difficult. There is no mystery uh, too deep that he cannot solve. They are in the presence of the one who does all things well. And he's saying to them, guys, what, a week ago, I fed like 5,000, remember that? And then just a couple days ago, I fed the 4,000, you remember that? I think I can handle a lunch for 13, all right? I just, I think you gotta get your minds now off of lunch and get your mind on what it is uh, that I want you to understand here. There's a very serious spiritual principle that he wants his followers uh, to, comp to comprehend. Now, it, it's, it's interesting to me that we are probably in the fall of 29 AD. Now, remember, Jesus was not born on zero. You remember that Herod the Great, he died in 4 BC. So that means that Christ had to be born before 4 BC. Most scholars believe that we are in the fall of 29 AD. And of course, he's going to be crucified early spring of 30 AD. So we're talking about just a handful of months. Handful of months, these guys are going to be taking over. They're going to be uh, steering the ship. Uh, they're, going to, they're going to be in charge. Now, just look at this indictment that he brings in. I mean, look at what he says. I mean, he says, first of all, you got a little faith, right? These are, the, these are the guys he's turning the church over to. And he says, you guys got a little faith. And then he says, you really, you're kind of dumb. You know, you're not understanding what I'm talking about here. So you can see a sense of urgency on Christ's part. I got to get these boys up to speed and I got to get them up to speed in a hurry. Now, it's working. It's working because I think we're going to see now in verse 12, they're kind of coming along. They're kind of coming along. A lot of times they'd be in the dark for a long period of time. Well, Jesus just gives them kind of a slight rebuke here. And boy, they, they come right around. And they got it all figured out. Notice as we close with verse 12, we read this. And then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread. Oh, you can see him. Oh, he's not talking about lunch. No, he's not talking about that at all. But rather, he says, the doctrine, the belief system, the worldview, the understanding of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, the Bible uses the term leaven or yeast because it becomes an appropriate picture, type, symbol, if you will, of sin. Because you take yeast and you put it into bread dough and there's no dietary reason not to eat it. It makes lovely bread. But that yeast will spread throughout the entire lump of dough and as it spreads, it putrefies. It decays and it creates those bubbles of gas that cause the dough to rise and it makes beautiful bread. Well, that's exactly what sin does. Sin in the beginning is very innocent. It doesn't seem like it's gonna create much of a problem for us, but it just spreads everywhere and everywhere it spreads in our life, it putrefies. And in fact, in uh, William Barclay, he tells us that sometimes the Jews use the word leaven much as we would use the term original sin or natural evil of, of human nature. So Jesus is talking 
talking about the corruption that were, was in the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In Mark's Gospel, chapter 8, he would say, he charged them saying, take heed and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. And now he adds another group here, Herod or the Herodians. And then a few chapters later in chapter 12, he says, now beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now you look at these three groups. You've got the shortcoming of the Pharisees was that of religious hypocrisy. With, the, with the, the Sadducees, it was unbelief. With the Herodians, it was always power and control. It was always manipulation and control. It was the abuse of power. And when you study church history, you see that every time the church has gotten off track, it's because it has been overtaken by one of these three areas. Jesus thought it so necessary that he says to the 12, beware now, do you understand what an intense word that word beware is? When was the last time somebody said that to you? When was the last time somebody walked up to you and said, beware, right? I mean, we understand that's an intense word. And Jesus means for these guys to take this seriously. You've got to beware of this. It is going to destroy hypocrisy. Oh, we all understand how easy that is to fall into, right? We, we come to church. We've not been living for God. We've been unfaithful in our family. We've been doing everything wrong. And as soon as we pull into that church parking lot, we put on the cheesy church smile and we walk in like we don't have any problem in the world. Look, we all struggle with hypocrisy. Every single one of us here, there is some area of your life that you know is not entirely up to the 100% approval of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is some area of our life that is yet to be conquered by the power of the Spirit of God. And the worst thing that you can do is just fall into that mode of pretending, nothing wrong with me, I'm doing A-okay. The best thing you can do is just cry out, God, help me. God, give me victory. God, I lay this at your feet once again. I am again just crucifying my flesh and reckoning the old man to be dead. And maybe you got to do that a hundred times a day, but that is far better than pretending that you're something that you're not. And then unbelief, how easy it is for us as a congregation to just settle in and to rest in our own abilities, our own resources, and not really trust God, where we have a form of godliness, but we're denying the power thereof. And then finally, the abuse of power. How many times do you see church leaders abusing and manipulating individual followers and congregations? It is a great sin that is to be shunned. And all three of these things, what they do is they will diminish the wonder of the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the most glorious story in all the world. The gospel simply says to us, we trust in Jesus, we turn to him, our sins are forgiven, and we have eternal life. You remember the story that Jesus told of the Pharisee and the tax collector that went up together to pray. And in that culture, the Pharisee would have been considered the most spiritual guy going. The tax collector would have been considered the most sinful guy. So you got, you got the most righteous guy, the holiest guy in the community, and you got the worst guy in the community. And they go up to pray. 
And you remember that Jesus said, that that Pharisee said, I thank you that I'm not like other guys and I pay my offerings and I do this and I do that. And his prayer was essentially just bragging about himself. And then you remember that the tax collector, he would not even raise his eyes to heaven. But he began to beat on his chest as if to say, this is where the problem is at. And he said, have mercy on me, O God, a sinner. Have mercy on me. Now, the important part about this story is what Jesus then says next. Because in verse 14 of Luke 18, Jesus says, I tell you, this man talking about the tax collector, he went down to his house justified. You think about that. The worst guy in the community, he prayed, have mercy on me. And he walked away. Now, he hadn't given any money in the offering. He hadn't gone on any mission trip. He hadn't shared his faith with anybody at all. He hadn't helped an old lady across the street. The guy had not done anything praiseworthy at all, except go home. And Jesus said he went home justified because we are justified before God, not because of our work, but by placing our trust in his work. We say yes to Jesus Christ and he imputes into our account righteousness. Our sin is imputed to him. He that knew no sin became sin for us in order that we who never had really known righteousness would become righteous before God. What an incredible story. You see, if you are in your sin this morning, I have got wonderful news for you. You don't have to stay there. And I pray to God that nobody here leaves this place being in a wrong relationship with the Lord. Maybe you're all in a right relationship with the Lord. I, I hope you are. But if you know that you're not right with the Lord, I certainly want to give you an opportunity to be made right right now. If you know that you're not right, again, let's, let's just take care of it. And I know that it's difficult what I ask, but once again, we're all family Right? And, and almost all of us in here have, have done one form of this or another. But I simply ask that you would raise your hand. That you're simply saying, look, yes, I'm turning Lord. I'm saying yes to Christ. I want him in my life. I want my sins to be forgiven. And then I'm simply going to uh, pray for you. So if, if you want to be made right with the Lord, again, God is giving you an opportunity. I believe he's brought you here to hear the wonderful news that he loves you and he wants to forgive you. He just needs you to turn to him. He's not going to violate your will. And so if, if you'd like to say yes to the Lord, just raise your hands. Is there anybody here you want to say yes to the Lord this morning? And I'm going to pray. Today is a day of salvation. Is there anybody here? Where are we at? What's, what's your name? Somebody help me. Colby. 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 Welcome home, Colby. You're going to have to tell me. Oh, Colby like the cheese. All right. I'll remember that this week. We're going to pray for Colby. Is there anybody else you'd like to say yes to the Lord this morning? Well, let's pray for our brother. Father in heaven. We thank you for your wonderful grace. We thank you, Father, that your Holy Spirit has brought Colby here today, that he would learn the glorious truth that you are in love with him. And even at this very moment, your Holy Spirit 
is setting up residency in his heart. And Father, I would ask that you would fill him with joy that is unspeakable and full of glory. I ask, Father, that he would leave this place knowing that he is not dirty before you, that he has, he has been washed clean because of the blood of Jesus Christ. I would ask that you would bring brothers in Christ into his life to help disciple him and to grow him in his faith. Help him, Lord, to manage relationships in his life as he now seeks to please you, which may place him crosswise in former relationships. I ask, Father, that you would just put a hedge of protection about him, that his mind would be steeled against the lies of the enemy, that he would know that he knows that he knows that he is is a son of God. Fill him now, Father, with joy and your spirit. We commit him to you, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.